1: visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places.
0: And we're back on Dealing Together, where we help good people who fell for bad deals. First caller?
2: I had to buy three identical
0: sweaters to get the fourth free. Ooh, you got fleeced. Next caller, what's your deal? I paid for 20 tanning sessions, but had to use them in a month. Now I'm orange. Ooh, you got burned. Next caller.
2: I traded in my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24+. plus.
0: Hmm, how's that bad?
2: I got to choose from their best plans.
0: So, what went wrong?
3: Oh, nothing went wrong.
0: And you're calling to...
3: To request a song?
0: You want a song, of course.
3: My choice is yours.
0: Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24+, plus with Galaxy A.I. on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything.
2: Offers vary by device subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See
4: ATG.com slash Samsung for details.
0: This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate.
5: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, including your stories. Send them to ouramericanstories.com. And now a story from Kemens Wilson, Jr. Kemins is a second-generation leader of their third-generation family investment company that's out of Memphis, Tennessee, with the first generation being his dad, the founder of Holiday Inn. And by the way, we broadcast an hour south of Memphis, in Oxford, Mississippi, a beautiful small town that's home to great writers like Faulkner and Grisham and also the home to Ole Miss. Kemmins has previously shared with us the Holiday Inn story, which you can find at ouramericanstories.com, and today he brings us some lighter stories about his father and the unusual interactions that he's had with some pretty famous folks. Here's (laughs) Kemmins.
4: I don't know if y'all remember back when they had the trampoline craze. Well, he decided that he wanted to put a trampoline that was on ground level. Our company here was manufacturing a round trampoline. It was about maybe four foot in diameter. And it had springs and you would just bounce on it. And the idea was you would jog in place. So he put one in out on Lamar Avenue, and at the time, our family company wrote the insurance for Hall of Ends. Back in the early days when you could do that, it wasn't a conflict of interest. So our head insurance guy said, hey, Kimmons, man, you can't do this. There's all kind of liability here. And he said, oh, get out of here. Just, it's just, they go just having some fun. And so I think within a week, some kid had bounced something down and went through the plate glass window. You know, so they started tearing it all up and, you know, but he would try anything. And, and so my dad called one day, he said, hey, Muhammad Ali is in town. He's standing at the big Rivermont Hotel down on, on Riverside Drive. And I'm gonna go by and see him would you like to come I said absolutely you know huge fan and so uh, he comes by he picks me up and he's got this trampoline in the car and so I said what are you what's that for he said well I want to see if he'll endorse it and I said oh man okay so we get up there and he's got a huge suite and he's got an entourage that you've never seen and Finally, we get Muhammad Ali out of his room and we meet him and my dad's got a camera. He said, uh, "He said, Mr. Ali, get on that traveling, and start, uh, start jogging a little bit. And so he did and took his picture and he said, I- I'd like for you to endorse this thing for us. He said, well, Mr. Wilson, you're gonna have to talk to my lawyer. I got a Jewish lawyer. And if you can get past them, we're good to go. And also, we're gonna need that picture you just took. <laughs> so at any rate, it, it, it went nowhere. But it, it, there was no, uh, no shame <laughs> in, in whatever he did. Uh, he was really bold in doing that. My dad loved Tabasco, and he loved it so much, he would get these little bottles and carry them in his pocket. Uh, so if the restaurant didn't have it, He had his own supply and this was in Holland's heyday. He called Mr. McElhenney and asked him one day, he said, look, I love your product and I'd like to buy your company. I think that much of it. And Mr. McElhenney said, Mr. Wilson, you don't have enough money to buy this company. And I don't know if you've ever looked on the back of the Tabasco, Salt, pepper, and vinegar. I mean, it's it's the secret sauce, and uh, so no telling how profitable they are and have been. And they became great friends, and every year he would send him a personalized bottle of Tabasco that they were so big it would take about a year to finish it off. I tell people, I think he put Tabasco on everything but ice cream. Later in his life, once he retired from Holiday Inns, he came to work for our family business and he got into the nacho business. He was making nacho chips. So he, he was good friends with Sam Walton. My dad starts making nachos. Well, he wants to sell them to Sam Walton. So, and I'm sure Mr. Walton was rolling his eyes like, listen, I don't have time to, so he puts him with one of his buyers, you know. And so we had the opportunity, because of Dad's relationship, to have lunch with Sam Walton on a couple of different occasions. Uh, at the Ramada Inn, uh, it was a buffet. Uh, he had a red truck with a bird dog in the back. So what, what, all these stories that you read about, they're true. Two people cut out of the same mole, you know, I, uh, I, I think, you know, my dad, having grown up in the depression, and and not really having anything, you know, th- th- I think that made an impression on him. And throughout his life, he was very, very frugal when he didn't have to be. But it was a mindset. I mean, uh, he wouldn't pay two cents if he thought it was worth one cent. You know, and. Money was just a number. He never really aspired to, you know, have second homes and boats and, but he grew up in that era, you know, where you didn't know where your next meal was coming from. So money was just a a number. And I'm telling you on multiple occasions, he, he risked it all. And I think if, if money had been that important to him, he, he probably wouldn't have done that.
5: And you're listening to Kemens Wilson Jr. with some fun and some fascinating stories about his dad who founded Holiday Inn. So many more good stories to come. Kemmons Wilson Jr. sharing fun stories about his father here on Our American Stories. And we continue with Our American Stories and with Kemmins Wilson, Jr., sharing some fun stories about his dad and Holiday Inn founder, Kemins Wilson. Let's return to Kemmins on his dad's relationship and friendship with a fellow Memphian named Sam Phillips.
4: Well, Sam Phillips had a recording studio called Sun Studios, And Sam Phillips actually discovered Elvis and Johnny Cash and Sam was a, he was an artist. And he and my dad were good friends. And he looked at my dad as a sort of a financial guy. And so they got in business with uh, radio stations. Sam was the operator and my dad, you know, put up some money. So as Sam's career in his studio went, he, he called my dad one night, and he said, uh, Kimmins, uh, I've got to talk to you. Uh, I've got maybe the opportunity of a lifetime. And you know, it was late at night. My dad said, well, look, uh, it's late. Why don't you just meet me at my office at six o'clock in the morning? That's what time he got to his office. So Sam said, no, is, I, uh, You know, this is too big a deal. I got to come over. And he said, okay, so Sam Phillips comes over, my father put on his bathrobe, and the background story on this is my dad and my mother were very uh, big band oriented back in those days. Tommy Dorsey, uh, big bands, They, they liked that music. So Sam Phillips tells my dad that he has an opportunity to sell Elvis Presley's contract to, uh, I think it was RCA for $35,000. And my dad, of course, knew who Elvis was, but you know he certainly didn't follow him. If you're a big band guy, you don't follow rock and roll. So when Sam said, I've got this really great offer, what do you think? Well, he told Sam Phillips, he said, well, I don't even think Elvis is professional. And I, I kid people today, it's, it's, it's tantamount to somebody asking me about a rapper. And I would say, no, no, I, they're not, you know, I don't like them. So Sam Phillips actually took my dad's advice and my dad said, sell his contract. And to be fair, this was the highest, highest paid contract in the history of the industry at the time. And Sam Phillips, uh, his business was not doing that great, so he needed the capital. And so anyway, so he sells sells Elvis's contract. And I, I always tell people, I said, make sure you know who you're asking advice from, because he just asked the wrong guy. The right guy may have said, hey, you may want to hold on to this thing for a little bit longer and see what happens. And my dad said, boom, cut it off. And he, Sam, was really a—he uh, was so keen on discovering talent. I mean, you know, he could listen to a demo record and go, "Bingo, that's going to be a hit." So he—he he may have gone a little bit out of his comfort zone, you know, because he may have thought that, "Hey, if I follow my intuition, I—I would have held him." But again. <clears throat> you know, if you need the money, you need the money. And it was the highest offer ever paid at the time. So, you know, you can't say somebody's stealing him then. <laughs> you can say it now. <laughs> so that happens. And uh, we all know Elvis went on to be a huge, iconic star of the universe. And Sam Phillips and my dad stayed best friends until they died. and. Sam Phillips had every right to never speak to my father again (laughs) like get out of my life you've ruined my life and we had a a a roast years later we roasted my dad and Sam Phillips was one of the roasters and he he said Kimmons uh you know we've been great friends I love you and uh he said, but I just want to tell you one thing. He said, not if I kept 10% of Elvis's contract, not if I kept 5% of Elvis's contract. He said, if I kept 1% of Elvis's contract, I'd be worth $50 million today. And of course, he got a big laugh from everybody. But again, that just goes to show you what kind of friendship they had. And neither one of them looked back Sam Phillips took that money and he went on to sign Johnny Cash and Carl Perkins and he went on to be very successful and you know if that had never happened I mean, the, you know the story about it season well how dumb can you be well you know it worked out for him and who knows if Elvis would have ever hit hit the mark again and and be honest with you I think my dad even if he thought Elvis was gonna be, or could be, a huge success. At that point in time, I think he gave him the right decision about you need to sell and redeploy this money back into your business and, and you'll be able to sign a couple of guys onto your record label and, you know, go from there. But it's a pretty good story when you tell somebody that Elvis is not professional. And another funny thing, he he never had, as long as he lived, an unlisted telephone number. And so I can't tell you how many times we would get a call at 2 o'clock in the morning. And my father would answer the phone, and it would be some guy that's had too much to drink in Peoria at the Holiday Inn. And he's complaining that they're they're closing the bar at 2 o'clock. And he I've never saw him got upset. You know, he would just say yes, okay, you know okay i'll 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 call the manager and we'll get back with you. And it, this was back in the days where the general manager, they used to call them innkeepers, they had to live on the property. And so at two fifteen in the morning he would call. <laughs> the general manager and just say, what in the heck is going on there? And you've got some guy in a bar, go take care of it. And I remember one phone call he had, again, uh, it had to be some intoxicated guest that was complaining about something. And my father said, well, who who do you work for? Now let's say I, I work for IBM. He said, "Oh, really? and What's your name again?" Well, he gave him his name. He said, "Well, great. I I know uh, Mr. Watson, who's chairman of, of I, IBM. He'd probably like to know about that." <laughs> you know, phone hung up. And but I mean, but, but to just think that he never had a uh, unlisted number. You could look in the phone book and call him. And we got all kind of crazy calls. Yeah. You know, when I look back, really. A lot of the milestones in his life were that, you know, he did have the largest hotel chain in the world at one time. He, he, he was on the cover of Time Magazine. He was uh, awarded the Horatio Alger Award, which is now kind of the rags to riches. Uh, he was one of the thousand makers of the 20th century, as noted by the London Times. And he was in the National Business Hall of Fame and really, you know, he, he got to meet presidents and popes and kings and queens and a bunch of celebrities. So I tell people he had a absolute wonderful life. I mean, you look back and trace it and, you know, you couldn't have, you know, you couldn't have scripted it any better.
5: And great job by Faith on the production of that piece. And a special thanks to Alex for bringing Kemmins Wilson Jr. to us. There have been any number of stories he's told about his father, about his family, and about his faith. The story of Kemmins Wilson Jr. and his father. And my goodness, it doesn't get better in terms of father-son stories and the influence of a dad on his son and shaping his outlook, his worldview, and so much more. Kemmins Wilson Jr.'s story here on our American Stories.
0: Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the capital region turn to for non-stop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more.
4: This
5: is Our American Stories, and we've already brought you the story of how UCLA undergraduate Steve Stolyer saved a Marx Brothers movie from extinction. But here's the story of how Steve called up Aaron Fleming, Groucho's manager, and landed the job of his dreams.
6: In the summer of 74, I had two or three summer jobs fall through. For which I remain eternally grateful. And my dad was pressuring me. I don't want you sitting around on your fanny all summer long. I want you to find some job. There's a, they may need a bus boy at this restaurant, or you could uh, go get interviewed at Taco Bell. And I thought I don't want to do any of that. But he's never gonna let up on me. So I called Aaron Fleming, figuring I had nothing to lose. And I said, is there anything at all that you think maybe I could sort of help with? And she said, well, actually, it's funny you called. Because I used to be Groucho's secretary, but now I'm his manager. And we need someone to handle all of the fan mail that's been coming in, and also to organize all of his memorabilia, which is going to be donated to the Smithsonian after he's gone. And we need someone who really knows their March brothers. And I'm thinking, please, 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 please. And in my mind's eye, I have this sort of uh, Tex Avery cartoon image of me zipping out of the house and instantly appearing on the doorstep of Groucho's house while Aaron is still on the phone explaining the job to me. It wasn't quite like that, but that's how it felt. And I thought that I would be working maybe in an office building maybe twice a month. He'd come by to sign checks or something. She said, oh no, you'll have your own room to work in at Groucho's house and uh, you can make your own hours. And and I thought, and they're and they're gonna pay me to do this? And so I drove to Groucho's house in Beverly Hills, and I was so nervous, but it worked out. And sure enough, there was a room that had been a painting studio that his last wife, whom he had divorced in 69, had used, and that became my office. And Groucha would often shuffle down the hall to or from his room or the living room or dining room, and we would chat. And uh, it was a very egalitarian household. Uh, I was to sit at the lunch table when Groucho would have lunch. There wasn't a, a sense that the help ate in the kitchen or anything that haughty. And so I would be lucky enough to be there when George Burns would come over or Steve Allen would come over or some of his former writers or if it was just just in quotes Groucho and maybe a nurse or Groucho and Aaron it would just be us and I could ask him all these questions that I'd had that I thought if I could ever meet him I'd want to know this and he appreciated the fact that I cared about and knew about all of the things that he had experienced and that he cared about and that we had similar you know we we both liked Tin Pan Alley and George Gershwin and Irving Berlin and the humorists of the Algonquin Round Table. One time he called me into his room and gave me a twenty dollar bill and he said go down to the record store and get me some records you know what I like and it, it meant so much to me that he had assumed that i would know what to get instead of having to explain it but i mean those those days at the lunch table were so rich uh and i came to appreciate him on on three different levels first of all he was groucho Marx, the guy in the grease paint mustache swirling around on screen insulting margaret dumont and in Duck Soup and Night at the Opera, and second, he was someone who personally knew people that, to me, didn't exist in three dimensions and in color. People like, uh, well, like George Gershwin and Irving Berlin, James Thurber, he was friends with W.C. Fields. Um, The idea that he knew these people personally you know, and I would get insight into what they were like from him firsthand, you know, not something he'd read or heard about, but he was there. And then on the third level, he was a man from 1890. He was a 19th century human being, literally a Victorian, since she was on the throne when he was born, although he was born in New York and not in England. and. His first-hand memories went from before the Wright brothers to after the moon landing, which is a staggering chunk of American history, world history. I asked him once, what's the earliest you remember? And he thought a moment and he said, I guess probably the Spanish-American War, which was 1898. And he and his brothers had initially started out as a singing act in vaudeville in the early 1900s before they started adding comedy they would sing harmony and popular songs and uh, you know they did okay at that but groucho's career went back so far that he actually was one of the performers at a special charity benefit performance at the metropolitan opera house in new york Uh, Enrico Caruso was also on the bill that night and the money was to go to the aid of victims of the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. For a history buff like me and as I say I had been a history major although I shifted to motion picture television after I'd been working at Groucho's a while because it was just impossible to ignore how strongly I was drawn to that world. You know, he would have health problems now and again. He'd have a small stroke or something like that, and I would think, oh, geez, this is it. This is—I think about three weeks into my working there, he had a slight stroke, and I thought, oh, it, it was great while it lasted. But now the the coach is going to turn back into a pumpkin. And you know, that that morning that I showed up, that he'd had a stroke, and the housekeeper said. Uh, Please keep your voice down. Mr. Marks has had a stroke, but the nurse asked that you go back to his room Because she needs some help and I expected him to be, you know, lying on the floor Unable to speak unable to move and instead he was sitting in bed propped up in his pajamas and mucklucks, reading the LA Times And he said uh, is the ambulance here yet? I said no, it figures and goes back to his reading (laughs) And I thought, gee, he's really taking this in stride. He's not banging at death's door. He's reading the LA Times. And it was just that the nurse needed help uh, getting him in to take a leak in the bathroom because his balance was off from that stroke. So I, you know, I was happy to help out. And he bounced back from that and from a lot of other health setbacks, even though he was in his mid eighties by then.
5: And you're listening to Steve Stolier's story, and in the end, Groucho Marx's story, too. And what a lucky guy, indeed, that those summer jobs fell through. Because what an opportunity, an opportunity of a lifetime. In Groucho's house, no less. His hero, so many Americans' heroes. By the way, he was a child of the Victorian age, and his comedy was a rebuttal to the Victorian age, its properness. And boy, Groucho was a revolutionary in his day. He really stretched the boundaries of what comedians were allowed to do and not do. And my goodness, what we learned listening to this is that even people like Groucho want to be appreciated, right? The legends appreciate appreciation. And we can never forget that. When we come back, more of this remarkable story here on Our American Stories.
0: Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long.
2: how did you choose to have it be so soft and, like, so simple? And what else was it going to—like, that's what the song wanted.
3: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline.
5: And we're back with Our American Stories and the story of Steve Stolyer, a college student who saved a long-lost Marx Brothers movie and then landed the job of his dreams working as Groucho Marx's personal assistant and archivist. Let's return to Steve and his story.
6: And it it just became this remarkably rich experience for me that ended up lasting not 3 weeks as I had thought that morning, but 3 years. The last three years of Groucho's life and so I was able to get to know and you know talk with and with Groucho my hero I also got to meet Zeppo the night that he came up there for dinner from Palm Springs I had brought the young lady I was dating a 19-year-old blonde who was very bright and very personable and very attractive. And he really took a liking to her. He, he sort of picked up where Chico left off in terms of having an eye for the ladies. And he had recently lost his last wife to Frank Sinatra, who dumped him and went for Sinatra, and that was Barbara Mark Sinatra. So he was back to being a bachelor. And uh, he he said, uh, you know, Steve, you and uh, Linda should visit uh, me in Palm Springs sometime. And I said, well, I don't know. I was there when I was about nine and it just, it was sweltering. And he said, well, when were you there in the summer? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, you know, Steve, it's also cold in Alaska in the winter. It was true that Zeppo did have a great sense of humor that really didn't get a chance to shine on screen. I had heard that he could be very funny and had you know a a charm and, and charisma and people are always skeptical of that because he was sort of wooden and didn't have the lion's share of funny stuff to do in the few movies he was in. He was never happy as a performer and once he Once he left the act after Duck Soup in 1933, he became a very successful agent, handling such obscure has-beens as Clark Gable and Carol Lombard and Barbara Stanwyck and Robert Taylor and Lucille Ball and Lana Turner. So he did really well and never looked back. But uh, anyway, a few months later, Linda and I broke up I had a couple of photos that I wanted Zeppo to sign so I mailed them to his address in Palm Springs and in my cover letter I said by the way Linda and I broke up so I know you've been around the block a few times if you have any advice for the lovelorn and a few days later my phone rings Steve is Zeppo marks I hope I'm not inconveniencing no no how uh, I got uh, the photos you sent God I was good looking back then but uh, listen I have a question for you and I I don't want to step on your toes you understand that because the last thing in the world I'd want to do would be something to upset you oh okay uh, do you think that Linda would go out with me and I thought, what I mean she was 19 I was 20 and he was 74 but but a young 74 but 74 and I I said uh, uh, I don't know I mean she she enjoyed uh, you know she got a kick uh, because uh, really tell me honestly Steve if this is at all uh, uncomfortable for no 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 I said, so let me let me ask her, and... Uh, okay, I, I would appreciate it, and and again, if it's any... Pro- no, 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 no. So I saw her at school, and I asked her about it, and she laughed, uh, also finding it strange and funny, but thought, you know, what the heck? I, I, I wanna have the experience of going on a date with Zeppo Marx. So they went out once, uh he took her to dinner in san diego and then drove to tijuana and attended a hi game at a stadium and then took her home and i talked to him afterwards and he said steve i want to tell you i never even kissed a good night you should know that she's very nice but all she did was talk about herself And then I saw her on campus and she said, you know, Zeppa was really nice, but all he did was talk about himself. And I thought, that's a really interesting symmetry there. And then at parties, at Groucho's, whenever Zeppa would be there, he would make a point of introducing me to someone and say, this is Steve, he's a nice young man. He and I dated the same girl, but he got further with her than I did. That was like my official introduction. So anyway, I have the distinction of being able to say that Zeppo, Marx, and I dated the same girl. Uh, I also got to meet the other living Marx brother, Gummo, who, to those who aren't that familiar with the Marx Brothers, it's even more obscure because Gummo was the straight man before Zeppo on the stage and then he was drafted during World War One and left the act so at the time 17 year old Zeppo took his place and Gummo also became an agent and did very he became Groucho's agent actually and did very well he was never that much interested in performing so I got to meet three out of five of the Marx Brothers which is you know approximately three more Marx Brothers than most people ever got a chance to meet Harpo and Chico Uh, Had died in the early 60s, unfortunately, so I was never able to meet them But when I would watch Groucho and Zeppo and Gummo talking amongst themselves Which was great. I thought what must it have been like with all five brothers in their youth sitting around the table? It must have been hysterical Groucho had a cook named Robin who was tall and thin and blonde and young. When Zeppo and Gummo had come up for dinner and I was there for that dinner, Zeppo said, Robin said she'd marry me, but I don't know. I think she's too tall for me. Groucho said, well, what part of it do you want? And Zeppo said, I'll take as high up as I can reach. And Gummo said, what do you want with her feet? so there's a gummo anecdote which is extremely rare but evidence of the kind of goofy humor they had amongst themselves that quickness it was just it was all still there under various layers of rust i was very fortunate because of my groucho association i became friends with dick cavett that was another case where because of my insecurities I thought when Groucho was gone, my link to Dick Cavett would be over. But instead, he called me from New York the week Groucho died. And he said, listen, I hope just because Groucho's gone, we're not going to lose touch. And by the way, I hope you don't mind, but I've shown some of your letters to Woody. And he says they're very well written. And I sort of had to empty the urine out of my shoes that Cabot was calling me to say, hey, don't don't drop me as a friend and saying, I hope you don't mind. But Woody Allen thinks your letters are well written. So that was something. And in fact, I did end up uh, moving to New York in 1982 and spending a few years there writing for Dick Cabot at HBO and had many remarkable adventures in Manhattan, including getting to meet Woody Allen and Katherine Hepburn and lots of other stuff before I returned to LA to take another job. And it was so great when I was working at Groucho's to be able to comfortably meet these people and converse because I think they figured since I was inside the house, I must be okay, whether I'm Groucho's grandson or something like that. If I'm sitting at Groucho's lunch table, it might must be okay. So there wasn't any, nobody, there were no star trips there. There was people that were very down to earth. And I tended to find that the old people who were legends were much more down to earth and personable than some of the people who had recently become famous. Aaron Fleming tended to have younger friends um, Elliot Gould and George Segal and Bud Cort and Sally Kellerman and uh, Streisand to a lesser degree. And and I, I found myself instantly drawn to Groucho's old gang. I felt much more that I belonged there, even though I was 19 and they were in their 70s and 80s, than I did towards Aaron's sort of quirky group of nouveau stars.
5: And a special thanks to Robbie for superb production and great storytelling. And a special thanks to Steve Stoller as well. Steve Stoller's story, Groucho Marx's story, here on Our American Story.